Hello there, I'm Lim Perkins from the History of the Ottoman Empire podcast. I am setting out to tell the tale of the Ottomans from its origins in the mid-1300s until its fall in 1923, after fighting for the losing side in World War I. In our modern world, where events from the Middle East dominate our headlines, and tensions between West versus East, Islam versus Christianity, are higher than ever, the history of the Ottoman Empire is more relevant than ever. A little over a hundred years ago, there was no Syria, no Israel, or Iraq. There was the Ottoman Empire. Eastern Europe and Egypt were also under its control. At its height, it was comparable in size and influence to the Roman Empire itself. After its fall in 1923, former Ottoman territories were divided up not by what made sense for the people of the region, but for the needs of the colonial powers that filled the power vacuum. Today, the countries that now make up former Ottoman territories still retain aspects of the empire that had ruled them for so long. We study the past to understand the present and avoid making the same mistakes in the future, which makes understanding the Ottoman Empire and the events after its fall critical in helping build a greater understanding of the modern Middle East. Sadly, there was not a lot of interaction between the Ottomans and the Native Americans, though I have forwarded the first map of the United States made by the Ottomans in 1803, and the Iroquois Confederacy is labeled in Ottoman Turkish on the map. So the two great civilizations must have known of each other. So whenever you are done learning about the Great Iroquois Confederation, search for the history of the Ottoman Empire wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 16, New Sweden. So last time, Caleb, we talked about how the French invaded Mohawk territory from Canada and burned most, if not all, of their main villages to the ground, forcing them to flee as refugees just before winter. Now in the past, we've talked about the wars against the Neutrals and the Wenro and the Erie. We talked about the Dutch, and this week we got a lot of other ground to cover because we've talked about nothing that's going on down south to the Five Nations. So that means we have to deal with the Susquehannock, the Delaware, and, yes, as we alluded to last time, the Swedish. First question, Caleb. What the heck are the Swedish doing in North America? Yeah, I remember when I first came across New Sweden in my readings, I, I'll i be honest, I never had any idea that there was a New Sweden I always picture them as being kind of kind of a smaller, non-important European regional power that has no business in uh, colonizing the New World. But that's exactly what happened. And if we look back to the early to mid-1600s, if you go and you look on a map, Sweden was a lot bigger then than it is now. In fact, Sweden was, at the time, one of the larger powers in Europe, especially Northern Europe. They actually controlled large amounts of Norway, Finland, and they even had other colonies on Germany, Poland. They basically were the masters of the entire Baltic Sea at the time. Just like anything, when you are an up-and-coming power like Sweden is, and you're seeing all these other European countries starting to make money off furs and other things coming out of the New World, 
Obviously, you're going to jump on that and see if you can get some of the action. In the year 1638, two ships actually landed in uh, the Delaware River area, not too far from where the Dutch had settled up, not too far from uh, New Amsterdam at the time. Yep. If you've ever been to Delaware and you've heard of Wilmington, it was in that general facility on the Delaware River. Now, the Swedes, they didn't just show up and land a ship without thinking this through. They had somebody come to help them start the thing, and that guy's name was Peter Minuet. Now, if you've ever done any reading about New Netherlands, you'll find that Peter Minuet was one of the leaders in New Amsterdam at the time. But he was offered some more money, a new opportunity, and he got kind of mad at the government in Holland. And so he helped start this rival colony, just a few hundred miles away. So when the Swedes work their way up the Delaware River and they begin to look for a place to land, they look around and they see no signs of anybody else being around here. Uh, Literally, did they know that New Netherlands technically later we're going to see has, could make the argument that they have the claim to this area. But at the time, they pull up and they meet with the Delaware Indians and the Delaware Indians are pretty excited that they might have a new trading partner that's going to start a new fort here. Yeah, because if you think about it, the Mohawk and the Iroquois have been trading with the Dutch and to some extent on and off again with the French. And these other New England tribes have been able to trade with the Dutch and the English. Delaware really haven't had anybody that they can directly go to without going through anyone. The Delaware give them permission to uh, purchase a small piece of land. I imagine they trade, you know, give some trade goods or something. And they build the, the, the first fort, Fort Christina. Fort Christina, named after Queen Christina of Sweden. Now, it's an interesting thing to note that there's a bit of a discrepancy between what the Swedes say that they acquired and what the Delaware said that they allowed. The Delaware claim that they gave a parcel probably a few acres, maybe a, a large farmland area. They said that the treaty read that they gave them a space between a certain number of six trees. The Swedish, however, claimed that they had 50 miles on each side of the Delaware River for a day's journey for a man's walk. That's a big difference. Yeah, it is. Uh, I'll also point out that this first fort that they created for Christina was much like the first Dutch fort. It was a log house, and that was the fort. It was literally a house. Pretty interesting side note that a lot of people might not know. You could argue whether the Swedes had a big influence on shaping the Northeast and the colonial America, especially as we know it today. But one thing that they did give us was the log cabin. Yeah, it was predominantly... Now, we mentioned that Sweden was a regional power, and they controlled Sweden and Finland and many other portions of Northern Europe. And so a lot of these settlers were mixed not only Swedes, but Finns and Estonians and other people. And so it's the Finnish people that brought the style of the log cabin with them. Any kind of colonial thing we're going to see was set up as a log cabin. Now, when I heard this, I thought it was a complete load of crap because what is a log cabin? I mean, it's a log house. It seems like people would have been building those for thousands of years. But up until then, people were building much more, almost, almost more conventional colonial houses where you have like a frame of wooden logs and then you will just split the logs down and put planks on to cover it up. Like basically the Lincoln log style of houses cutting notches in the logs and laying full trees. You didn't need a sawmill to do that. Exactly. You could just have axes and you could build a shelter. So these spread like wildfire and everybody 
as soon as one person learned it, these became the staple for all the frontiersmen for the next hundred years. Yeah. So the Swedish have established this great fortress called Fort Christina. And let's touch base on what people are already living here. So we mentioned that the Delaware gave them permission. Now, the Delaware was an acquired name. Uh, Originally, they called themselves the Lenepe people. And close by them, on the other side, into Pennsylvania, were the Susquehannocks. They went by several different names as well. If you're reading any old uh, history books by the French, the Huron called them the Andaste. The Lenepe, who didn't much care for the Susquehannock, called them the Mengue, which roughly translated means uh, eunuchs or somebody without their uh, member attached. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Delaware were an Algonquian-speaking people. Yes, they were. And the Susquehannock were an Iroquoian. Yes. And not only were they an Iroquoian, but they believe, based on their language, that they were very closely related to the Cayuga and the Mohawk, I believe. Cayuga, Oneida, Mohawk area. Because they're south of the Five Nations, the Susquehannock, they're actually just as close to any of the five tribes between one part of their nation from the east all the way to the west. They Mm -hmm. can just as easily travel to Seneca as the Mohawk. But they found that their language was the closest to the uh, the eastern side of the five nations. Yep, so picture them, their territory stretched from southern New York, where the base of the Susquehanna River starts. It starts from a lake up near modern-day Cooperstown, New York. And the Susquehanna River, if you've ever seen it, it gets massive. And it flows all the way down from southern New York through Pennsylvania. And the Susquehanna, that was their main area where they lived. The For those of you that don't know the geography that well... The Susquehannock River is the main freshwater tributary to the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. And it's a very long river. It goes all the way up. It splits at one point and it goes all the way like halfway into New York from Maryland. Now, the Susquehannock, they believe, again, it's hard to get a census taken at the time, but they probably numbered between 5,000 and 6,500 people. So putting them comparably to about half the size of the five nations at this point in time. So let's give a brief overview of where the other European colonies are at this time, Caleb. Now, what's the year we're talking about right now, Andrew? Well, New Sweden started in about 1638. So in the year 1638, it's very easy. A lot of people do a disservice when they show their maps without really looking into how they are at the time. Because you've got to remember, every couple years, you're going to see over the course of 100 years, yes, all of these new colonial colonies are going to be pushing west inland. But at the time, these are very small amounts of land that are actually dominated by the European powers. I'm glad you brought that up, Caleb. If you go on, I don't care if it's a history book or Wikipedia, and you look at a map and it will show French claimed land in North America, it'll show all of Middle Canada and the Mississippi Valley and northern New York all the way up to Montana, and the English have the whole eastern seaboard. That's what they claimed they had. But try telling that to people that were living there that have never even seen a European before. So I'd invite you guys to check out our, go on our website, longhousepodcast.com, and click on our Maps tab, and we have some accurate maps for the time period there. So I'll just describe to you, for example, when you think of New York today, picture... Uh, New Netherlands, which, as you know, uh, New Amsterdam. New York City, modern-day New York City. They, it was really only about a third of Long Island, and then 
the river up to Albany. And even that had the area around Albany, but they just had the trade network for the river, but they really had no other forts along the Hudson River. So that's New Netherlands. If we're talking the English at the time, they basically have from Boston to Providence, Rhode Island. They kind of have this triangle square there, Plymouth, Boston, and Providence. And Connecticut's new on the map. They have New Haven, and they also have a little establishment on the other side of Long Island. But these things are small. The pilgrims arrived on the Mayflower in 1620, so this is only 18 years later. Mm -hmm. These are not huge settlements. And then the biggest one is Virginia, and then Maryland is a new colony as well. But Maryland is, again, just a strip of land going up along the Chesapeake. Yeah, Maryland at the time is just uh, the eastern side of the Chesapeake Bay and maybe 50 miles in, and that's it. And Virginia is basically just colonizing on the tips of uh, the Chesapeake Bay, wherever they can find room. And modern-day Jamestown and around the Hampton Roads area. And then you have New France way up in the north, which is just, you know, like we've mentioned in our past podcast, where you just have Montreal and... Yeah, pretty much the St. Lawrence River Valley, and they haven't pushed that much further yet. So all of New York State that you think of today, all still controlled by Mohicans and Algonquins and the Five Nations. Yep. And then New Sweden, again, they claim the the 50 miles on each side, but in reality, it's probably more like a mile area around Fort Christina. It's really not much of anything. So as we said, New Sweden is not too far from New Netherlands. They're setting up their fort, and then all of a sudden they find out, maybe we don't have legal right to be here, because New Netherlands claims that they have claimed this entire area years ago. And now we're here, and they just find out we're here, and it's starting to cause some tension between New Netherlands and New Sweden. They've got a way that they can get around this, though. What do they do? Well, think of it this way. Uh, the colonial power says that they've already claimed that, but what would, you, what would you do? I would say, well, I bought it from the Indians that were here first. Obviously, New, the- New Netherlands was there before New Sweden, but they went tried to go around that. We don't, if we can prove that the Delaware Indians sold us this land, it would hold up in basically the UN court type of thing. So that's exactly what they try to do at that point. They they try to go around New Netherlands and say, okay, we're going to purchase this land from the Delaware, and so it's ours, legit. They had ways that they could kind of convince the Delaware to do that. We've mentioned in the past how reluctant a lot of people were to start selling guns and start selling powder to all the other tribes. And we're going to see why this goes to play a big role in uh, the Susquehannock and Delaware surviving as long as they did. Because even the nations that started to supply guns to the Indians held back powder. Did you know that? Well, that makes sense. A gun is pretty useless if yeah. you don't have gunpowder. They all thought, yeah, I just get the gun and I'm all set. But they knew that if they controlled the amount of powder. But Sweden was the first people that would give unlimited amounts of powder to anybody. As you see where we're going with this, once there starts to be war breaking out with the Susquehannock and the Iroquois, the Susquehannock, even though they have less men, they have all been armed with guns and more powder than the entire Iroquois at this point. Wow. The Susquehannock become really good friends with the Swedes as they're there. And at this time, this is just as the Beaver Wars are really kicking up with the Iroquois. In 1642, the Susquehannock start using their newfound power, much similar to the Iroquois, to start spreading west to wreak havoc among other Indian nations that are there. 
Well, they start pushing over into the area that is now Maryland. And the newly established colony of Maryland is not too happy because the Indian tribes and nations that are there want to trade with them. And now the Susquehannock are encroaching upon the Maryland allied Indians. So this all comes to a front, as you can imagine, Caleb. So Maryland declares war on the Susquehannock. So in 1643, they send out a campaign against the Susquehannock. Kind of what you're thinking. They fire guns at them, and the Susquehannock say, I'm not sticking around for that, and they just kind of flee. In 1644, Maryland sends out a second campaign against the Susquehannock. The English are totally routed. At least 15 men are captured. They didn't stay captured too long. In fact, they never made it back at all. Along with two of their cannons and many other supplies. And the, th the thing is that's interesting about this battle, Caleb, is that there's no official record from Maryland. No official record of what? That, that, that they, they lost. Oh, really? Well, uh, I think that, like I mentioned with the guns at the time, they weren't expecting the Susquehannock to be so well-armed or so well-efficient already with the guns in this short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Swedes profusely denied that they gave any guns to the Susquehannock, and Maryland profusely denied that they were launching any raids into Susquehannock territory, which um, the Swedes had a nominal claim on. So it was kind of like this Cold War era sneaking around kind of thing. But Maryland is not a big colony at the time, and so over the next few years, they realized that the Susquehannock are a huge problem for them. In 1647, we mentioned that this is the height of the Beaver Wars, Caleb, so the Huron are on their last leg at this time up north in Canada, and they're sending emissaries down to the Susquehannock to try and form an alliance because the two could then sandwich in between the five nations. Okay, but picture this. Uh, you, you may remember when we've talked about the Huron that they live north of the Great Lakes, past the Adirondacks Mountains, up into northern Vermont area, everything up there. And the Susquehannock are down in modern-day Pennsylvania. Yep. So you've got to walk through a certain place to get there. Yeah, you basically have to go through the Five Nations or really close to it to try to get your emissaries there. But it seems like that would be very difficult. Yep. So the Huron try to play the Five Nations off one another. They try to get a negotiation to get a ceasefire with the Onondaga and Cayuga. But what happens is the Mohawk intercept these messages and they put an end to the negotiations, shall we say. The Mohawks say, hey, these guys are trying to strip these other nations away from us. And of course the Anadaga and Cougar are like, well, no, no, no. We, we had nothing to do with it. They just mentioned that. We are totally loyal to this confederacy and we are not letting any emissaries through. We're not letting them peel us off and divide us from one another. And so within three years, the Huron had fallen, leaving the Susquehannock on their own down south. And by this year, the Erie are gone, correct? Yeah, this is the same time that the... This is just before the Erie are um, to be extinguished. I think that was the 1650s. Okay. So the same time that they're pushing through and conquering the Wenro and the Neutral and then the Erie's last, in 1651, the Iroquois attack south into the Susquehannock land. But they don't have very good success, Caleb. Why is that again? Guns? Oh, yeah. As we mentioned, they had guns. With the Erie and the Neutrals, they didn't. And so quickly they were overrun. But now the Iroquois are dealing with, for the first time, other Indian nations that are dealing with uh, rifles. And not only did they have regular handheld muskets and rifles, Caleb, the Swedes had given them 
cannons. And so in 1651, when they attack their main town, they go up to it, and you know how the towns are normally fortified. Well, they go up to find that they've been, the fortifications have been strengthened European style, and on the corners, they have turrets with small little guns. Yeah. Not, don't think of the huge Civil War era cannons, but think of like a, a three-foot-long cannon with a, a ball probably yeah. the size of These a These were probably one-pounders. Pound, one yep. But still, if you see little turrets yeah. on the corners this there... This is the first record of a Native American fort having guard towers with cannons on it. So that's kind of cool. It's very cool. And so the, the Iroquois get down there and they're like, I'm not charging up against that stuff. So they turn around and leave. At this point, Maryland decides that the Susquehannock are a power on the rise and that they should probably make nice with them. So Maryland and the Susquehannock formally bury the hatchet and form an alliance, mainly to stop the advance of the Iroquois into southern territory. Meanwhile, what's going on back in New Sweden, Caleb? Well, New Sweden is kind of a fickle colony at the time because New Sweden didn't tend to grow like the other colonies. These new colonies became a great opportunity for people that didn't like the politics, didn't like the religion, just didn't like the oppression of living in some of these uh, monarchies. Uh, so a lot of people volunteered to be settlers in these, in these colonies so they could have their own farms and, and live their lives with their families. But the Swedes kept coming across a major problem, and that was that people kept deserting New Sweden and going up to New Netherlands. Why? Or going down to Maryland. Or going all the way up to Massachusetts. Because they were running their their colony like a monarchy, just like back in Europe. Oh, so there wasn't really any freedom? No, they were running it military style for all these poor settlers. They were being there and they were basically being ruled by a dictator of their village that would control everything they do. They, you know, they'd wake up one morning and go to try to do, get some farming done. He'd be saying, no, you're all going over here to drag these trees down for this hut here. And they said, oh, winter's coming. I should probably start getting ready to build my house or something. He said, no, this is more important. So every time there'd be a new shipment that would come, and also I'm not sure if you know this, I think there's only 22 ships throughout all yes, of New Sweden. very few came. So that's maybe one a year, and I heard that some of those even sank before getting there. So well, let's say maybe one ship a year of supplies and more settlers. So very few. And then as soon at, at, as soon as they'd get there, people would start to leave after the Sweden trade company paid for them to get over there. People were basically deserting to a better colony. If you want to read more on New Sweden, you can. There's a lot of information out there, even though people don't know about it. But this guy that was running this place was a real tyrant. Like you said, he actually had people executed for insubordination and alleged mutiny. And he was, I like to think of him like from the really, really bad Disney film Pocahontas. You know, the really fat guy? Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe, General yes. Ratcliffe. General Ratcliffe. This guy reminds me of him because they said that he was like a 350-pound guy. How in the 1640s do you become that fat <laughs> living in a dilapidated Swedish settlement in... The new world is beyond me. But he was this huge guy, and nobody liked him. I mean, they even had people deserting to the Lenape and the Susquehannock. Oh, really? I yes. didn't know that. <laughs> Must have been pretty bad there. Uh, so New Sweden, at its height, mind you, only had 500 settlers living in New Sweden. So from the very start, New Sweden, it was never self-sufficient. Nobody could 
grow enough food to feed themselves or their families. And uh, there were, like I said, you'd maybe get one boat of supplies a year. And this colony is based on trade. And if you're not getting new trade goods from Europe, if you're not getting guns and things that the Indians want, then you're not getting furs. So they're stuck in this place where they don't know how to farm yet. They're not given enough trades to trade with the Indians. And in the meantime, the Delaware and the Susquehannock are getting mad at them because they're getting the worst garbage to trade for. They're like, we were looking forward to having these people close to us, but they've got just garbage to trade us, so we're just going to go up to New Amsterdam and trade there. And meanwhile, anybody that had half a brain was leaving. Oh, I'm a carpenter. Well, I could go down to Maryland and make a lot more money, or I could go to New Netherlands and open up a new shop on Manhattan Island. Also, and this is just a recipe for disaster. I don't know why they would even consider this. But a lot of these other colonies, they would send skilled labor over that could build things. But Sweden started selling convicted felons and people like this over with no trade whatsoever. So they would get there and they would just be a burden on the colony as opposed to helping it. Now, we had mentioned this really authoritarian guy. His name was actually Johan Prince. And I misspoke a few minutes ago. He was actually over 400 pounds, Caleb. And the local native people called him Big Belly. Now, at this point, Governor Johann Prince uh, is starting to worry. He's been ruling this settlement with an iron fist. And relations are breaking down with the natives at this point, like I said, because there's not any good trade goods. And uh, there starts to be insurrections. But like uh, good Amer- these new good Americans, we'll call them, even though they're Swedish. But we'll, they're in the new America, so we'll call them Americans. They want to do things the right way, and they are upset with this governor, so they are going to petition to say that he's not doing a good job, and they're going to request a new governor. But Governor Prince gets word of this, and he looks at it as mutiny. Yeah, in a military fashion. He considered everybody there as a member of the military, even though many of them were just settlers or traders. So he court-martials and has one of them executed. Yeah, I imagine this was a big deal in a small little settlement like this to execute someone merely for saying that you're doing a bad job when you're a 400-pound oaf that obviously is doing a bad job. So he has this guy executed, and then promptly, as soon as he's executed, he gets on a boat and he sails back to Sweden. Wow. And he leaves his daughter and son-in-law in charge to hold everything together. At the same time, the Dutch have... Not really gone along with the whole idea that New Sweden is in control of this area. And so the Dutch come down and they build a fort just a few miles from Fort Christina on the river. And the Swedes are like, hey, this is ours. And the Dutch are like, um, yeah, we're going to build a new trading post here. Because the Dutch have all this great relations with Native Americans. And they realize that they can pretty much, if they offer anything, it's going to be better than what the Swedes are offering to trade. And so everybody's going to be going to them now. And what happens next, I imagine, like I'm picturing uh, Governor Prince's son-in-law being there and saying, what can we do? Oh, let's fight. Let's fight them. And it just sounds so absurd because if you think about it, New Netherlands has been here longer. They have more money. They have stronger influence. So this is just going to end bad. But anyway, they raise up their, their group of army or whatever you want to call them settlers you give them all a gun and they go in and they actually take over the new netherland fort wow that's great caleb 
What a great victory for them. They're on the move and expanding. Yeah, they're conquerors now. That's great. Until word gets over to New Amsterdam and then back to the Netherlands back in Europe. And they, they send a whole armada down, you know, I think like 500 more soldiers with cannon and everything. And they show up and take back the, the Dutch fort and then they march to Christina, pretty much set up a siege and say, um, you guys need to surrender. And they say, oh, we'll never surrender. And after a week, they realize that their plight is hopeless. So on September 15th, 1655, New Sweden ceased to exist and became part of New Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Don't think of this to the settlers. I'm wondering if this was actually like a blessing. Great! Awesome! Because New Netherlands, they were happy to have more settlers. It's not like they shipped them back to Europe or had them executed or anything. People that wanted to leave could, but anybody else could be to use the borrowed term, assimilated into the, the Dutch culture. And before they even officially took, took hold, they issued a proclamation that everyone there that had their piece of land and personal property would all get to keep it and just keep doing what they're doing. The only difference is now they'd be dealing with New Netherlands instead of New Sweden. The unfortunate thing for New Netherlands is this kind of sets a precedent because it was very easy for New Netherland to come in and conquer New Sweden. But if you look at our map, Caleb... Where are the English in proximity to the Dutch? Well, on Long Island, if you broke it up into thirds, basically the English do have a part of Long Island. New Netherlands is basically the inward most part connecting to the closer side of North America. Up to the northeast of them, you have New England and those three colonies there, Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, Rhode Island, and I guess the fourth is now Connecticut, New Haven. And then down south, you have Maryland and Virginia. In between, you have New Netherlands now sandwiched in between. And so the British are starting to look at this and like, hey, why don't we just control everything in the eastern seaboard? And also, New Netherlands controls the best river inland for that entire area. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to head up towards the New York, Albany Fort Orange area. Mm -hmm. So if they can control that, all of a sudden they have the exclusive fur rights for the whole five nations if they knock New Netherlands out. Yep. At the time, down in Manhattan, all the trade that was coming down, they were getting tens of thousands of pelts, maybe 50, 60,000 pelts shipped out a year. So all that money, the Dutch were getting really rich, but the Dutch really didn't invest too much in any kind of military or naval force at all. They were just traders and artisans and settlers. Their, their focus was not colonizing the whole continent. Their goal was just to be there and make money. Now, the English realized that the Iroquois are a powerhouse in the region, but they're not directly connected to the Iroquois. They've got all these other Algonquin nations in New England bordering along the Iroquois, mainly the Mohicans and then other smaller Algonquin tribes. And so they convinced them to invade the Iroquois at the same time that they tried to invade New Amsterdam. They tried to do a a two-prong attack because they figure if the Iroquois get distracted while they're being invaded, then the English can come in and try and take out the Dutch, realizing that there's going to be no backup from any of the five nations. Again, these Indians are given guns. The Iroquois have to deal with an attack by the Soki tribe. They were predominantly on the upper Connecticut River. And so with these guns and these supplies, all of a sudden the Mohawks have to defend their own land. So in 1664, the English sail a fleet of ships into New Amsterdam Harbor, 
They step off the boat and they say, hey, everyone, how you doing? Um, this is ours now. Thank you so much. Uh, we would love it if you could all be subjects of the English crown. Isn't that great? Peter Savacent, who is the governor general there, just realizes that their plight is hopeless. They're not going to see any reinforcements from the Netherlands at any time. Definitely, they don't have a navy to compete with the English. And so he holistically surrenders everything. Now, very similar to you mentioned with the Swedish, Caleb, the Swedish just kind of gave up, but they were allowed to stay. It was the same deal with the Dutch. Everybody that was there could stay, and many of them kept their prominent government positions. The difference was all of this trade and money was going to London instead of to Amsterdam. Which probably didn't make a lick of difference to the settlers, because they're getting the same cut, but... Mm -hmm. And predominantly, you're still speaking Dutch. Things are going to change over time, and obviously the English are going to start to matriculate in and settle as well. But yeah, to the guy trading up at Fort Orange in Albany, he's making the same amount of money. Doesn't really affect him. So the Five Nations and the other Native American nation are now all of a sudden going to find... They didn't realize how good they had it with the Dutch, I think, because... Like we said, the Dutch were just in it for the business. They had no interest in their land. But now, the people they're going to be trading with are going to be the direct people that are going to be slowly moving in and displacing them. So at this time, the English realize that the Iroquois are a powerful nation, and they want to establish a treaty with them. And so, do you remember back in our Dutch Blitz episode, Caleb, how we talked about the two-row treaty? Yeah. Well, the Iroquois agreed to a treaty with the English, but they viewed it as a successive treaty carried over. So the Dutch established the treaty and the English are taking it over. Well, you guys are the new powers in town. You're Europeans too, and this is the deal we had with the Dutch, and we'd like to keep the same deal with you. Uh, modern day, they called this agreement the Covenant Chain. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I've heard of that. Now, just like the Iroquois told stories and legends to explain how things happened, they also had a story of how they came to be allies with the English. And so this quote comes from historian Timothy Shannon. He's taking this from writings from Benjamin Franklin on different treaties and meetings with the Iroquois. One day, the Dutch arrived in Iroquois country on a ship, bringing with them hatchets, knives, guns, and other trade goods. They gave these things to the Iroquois, who found them useful, and decided to tie the Dutch ship to a tree. They anchored the other end of the rope in Onondaga, at the seat of the Iroquois League. They then sat on the rope, so if the ship was ever in trouble, they would know how to come immediately to its assistance. As years passed, the Iroquois provided land for the Dutch to settle on and invited them to enter the League and Covenant with us, and to become people with us. Their union having grown stronger, the Iroquois and Dutch replaced the rope with an iron chain. When the English came and saw what great friendship existed between us and the Dutch, they too sought to enter Covenant with the Iroquois. Knowing that an iron chain would rust and break, the English replaced it with a silver one and agreed to keep it bright and clean so that it endured forever. Isn't that a nice story? Very poetic. Very poetic. You'll hear this come up a lot when there's councils or new treaties coming up with the English. They will say that we need to polish the chain. You know that silver can tarnish over time, and so the chain was always there. But whenever there was a disagreement with the English, they said, we need to get together and we need to polish this chain. We need to get relations smoothed over. And that was the same term they used when the Americans ended up taking over. And so the uh, Treaty of Canadagua was an extension, they believed, from this covenant chain. They were now designating the transfer of the covenant from the Dutch to the English and then to the Americans in 1794. And so the Treaty of Canadagua still stands. They consider it the continued 
thing of the covenant chain. So every year on the anniversary of the treaty, they get together, they exchange some trade goods, and at the same time, they hold a ceremony at the Treaty Rock in Canadagua, and they say that they're polishing the chain. For those of you that live in uh, western New York, and if you've never been to one of these, it's a public event. It's held at the Ontario County Courthouse. In front of that, there's a, a monument celebrating the Canandaigua Treaty, also known as the Pickering Treaty. And uh, I'd, I'd invite anybody to come and just see what it is. They bring in a lot of the, the elders and the clan mothers, and mm-hmm. they all come and they accept certain gifts, as is tradition, you know. And they give speeches, and a lot of the speeches they, uh, they even give in the native uh, Iroquois languages. Oh, really? Yes. And what day did you say that is? Uh, that's on every November 11th, so this year it's on a Friday. November 11th in the city of Canadagua, New York. Yep, it'll be at Treaty Rock at 2 o'clock, and I believe they have a thing at the local school beforehand, and then they do a parade up the street to the courthouse. But we've still got a lot of ground to cover between now, in the 1650s, all the way up to the Treaty of Canandaigua in 1794. And we're going to see that that chain needs to be polished a lot of times between now and then. Oh, yes. A lot of elbow grease is going to need to go in because there's going to be a lot of tugging and bending. Now, while this is happening down in the south, we've covered all the stuff happening up in the north in previous episodes. The Huron have predominantly fallen as a nation. The French have gone to war with the Iroquois. And in the 1660s, they've come down and burned the Mohawk towns. This is the same time that the English are taking over the Dutch. And so the Iroquois are now without their main trade partners. The Mohawks have been utterly devastated. The Susquehannock in the south are, have repelled the Iroquois, and now the Susquehannock are coming up and doing raids into the Iroquois territory. And so all of a sudden, the Iroquois are kind of on their own. They, they've established this chain with the English, but it's not really helping them much. They can still trade, but what can you trade when your Mohawk nation is now having to rebuild all of their villages? And also, like we said at this point, a lot of the beavers are already gone. On top of that, in the 1660s, a huge epidemic of smallpox whipped through, and they estimate that up to a thousand people in the five nations died. So another epidemic comes through. And so can you imagine if if your nation, which they estimate is about 12,000 at the time, one in 12 die within a year, on top of these invasions and on top of your trade networks being done and on top of Susquehannock raiding from the south, I mean, you would be thinking yeah. that the Iroquois nation is about to be destroyed. Uh, but you're going to find in our next episode just how resilient and determined the Iroquois were and how they once again rose above the challenge and turned into a superpower. Now, they haven't hit rock bottom yet because, believe it or not, things are still going to get worse before they get better. And so next time we're going to talk about the French invading again. Is that it? <laughs> And the Iroquois turning around and kicking their butt. Is that it? Seems like we always talk about that. And then there will be the Great Peace of Montreal, which will establish peace, I mean, until the French and Indian War. (laughs) Which is not too far away. (laughs) Thanks so much for tuning in, folks, today. We hope that you can keep all of that straight. It would really help if you go to our website and look at the map. That might give you a clearer picture of what's going on. Or you can always listen to us again to get a better idea of where we're going. Yeah, and if you're if you're confused by anything, feel free to shoot us a message on Facebook or send us an email, Facebook, Iroquois History and Legends, email, longhousepodcast.com. Mm-hmm. You can also find us again on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, many other things. Just type us in. 
Don't forget to leave us an iTunes review. We really appreciate it. Yeah, the the clan is growing. Have you seen that? Yeah. So like we said before last time that we were going to put people up, their usernames that wanted to join the clan by leaving an iTunes review. And now we have, I think, several dozen names up there. And so if you've always wanted to be a part of something greater, nothing can be greater than the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. We had to get shirts made for Wild Sweet Potato Clan. That'd be pretty funny. I'm still picturing painting the totem on the side of the house for the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. So Wild Sweet Potato Clan members can just come over and stay for free. But then Ooh. I'm... What if, what if people think because we've adapted them to this clan, they can show up at our house and we'll have to put them be up hospitable and... to them? Oh. Well, we better not give out our address or put a totem on the front of our house of a wild sweet potato. But if we did, our neighbors might think it's weird. Why's he got a yam on his front door? Well, anyway, I think that's all for this week. So until next time, folks, thank you and goodbye. Bye, everybody.